The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, when I was with you last week, we talked about how the defilements of greed, aversion, and delusion can come to an end through the practices the Buddha is said to have taught. And we were talking about some uh, sutta that refers to the destruction of the defilements. So uh, some teachers say that the end of these three, greed, aversion, and delusion, is freedom, is total liberation. So this is why this is really an interesting topic. And last week, we especially focused on how uh, the practices, this destruction of the defilements can help us release our identity view or our attachment to ideas about the self. Um, despite the kind of formidable sounding title of destruction of the defilements, um, the practices are actually very accessible to us and they tend to become more and more available over time when we practice awareness, mindfulness. Um, I'm going to list them again, and perhaps you can get a sense of how you've probably touched into each of these if you've practiced mindfulness for a while, in both on the cushion and in daily life. So here are these seven ways that the Buddha recommended we move towards freedom from suffering, stress, and dissatisfaction. The first was seeing what's fit for our attention and what is unfit for it. And by the way, um, you know, as we do this practice of receptive awareness that we were just doing, um, we want to be aware of things that come up that are unpleasant or not wholesome, but we don't feed them anything further. So when he's talking about seeing what's fit for attention and what is unfit, it means not feeding the unwholesome any further than just recognizing, okay, this is here. The second was restraining unwholesome tendencies that arise with stimuli at the six sense doors. So we get plenty that happens when we see, hear, taste, smell, feel, and think that leads to um, either wholesome things or unwholesome things for us. Lead to more suffering or lead to less suffering. The third was using only those uh, natural resources and human-made things that are needed for a healthy life. Basically not getting caught up in the sensual pleasures of our alluring consumer culture where we can get way into creature comforts and all kinds of things uh, beyond just food, shelter, medicine, you know, the, the necessary things. And it's not that those things aren't enjoyable, it's when do they feed suffering? Fourth, enduring the unpleasant situations that are part of life, but over which we don't have control or much control. For example, physical discomfort, we're going to have our share in our lifetime. Unpleasant things people say and do, these things are going to happen and we don't control that. So we can endure the unpleasant. The next way the Buddha recommended was avoiding dangers. Yeah, obviously, staying away from physically harmful things 
and staying away from people who bring out the unwholesome in us. Um, and then uh, removing arisen unhelpful thoughts. So this is a little bit of what I was saying before about, you know, we don't feed more when something unwholesome comes to mind or we're aware of it. Um, preferably we don't uh, throw fuel on that fire. <clears throat> and then finally developing mindfulness. What we're doing every time we sit in awareness and every time we bring awareness to bear during our daily life. Um, so another way that these, that guidelines like these for living towards freedom are offered in the suttas is through discussions of heedfulness. In other words, paying heed. And maybe that's an expression we don't use so often in contemporary English. But it's basically not running around oblivious to what we're doing, saying and thinking. Um, but instead, being aware of what we think, say, and do, and how they have an impact on whether we experience more stress, dissatisfaction, suffering, or less. Living in such a way that we pay attention to what's happening, especially in the mind. So the encouragement in the meditation to notice the attitude or the relationship of the mind towards what is arising at the sense doors is so important because it's in the mind where we either create more suffering or become free from suffering. If we lead, if we live heedfully, we're much more likely to learn to avoid things that are unfit ways to spend our attention and our time. We're much more likely to pay attention to wholesome thinking, speech, and behaviors. So this week I was struck uh, by reading a, from a sutta in which the Buddha seems to be recounting a turning point in his own life. Perhaps this was the turning point from being a little on the oblivious side, if he ever was, <laughs> towards becoming more heedful. So I'd like to read some passages from this sutta. And in between excerpts from the sutta, I'll reflect a little on the possible significance for us. And before I begin, I'll say that what I find so interesting in these passages are the Buddha's reference to three intoxicants we become heedless with. He describes three areas we get overly attached to, we might say casually addicted to, or stuck on that don't actually lead to sustainable happiness or freedom from suffering. They're part of this self-identification with situations and things as I, me, and mine in ways that don't help us. So I'll read from Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Varanasi. My turban was from Varanasi as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, 
dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from the palace. Whereas the servants, workers, and retainers in other people's homes are fed meals of lentil soup and broken rice, in my father's home, the servants, workers, and retainers were fed wheat, rice, and meat. So, just an aside, the Buddha has had luxurious homes, food, clothes, women who entertained him during the rainy season. And we can imagine that for a time, maybe he wasn't seeing what was unfit for attention about all this. He might not have been restraining himself at the sense doors. He could have been caught up in sense pleasures, right? He may have started to realize he was using more resources than needed. Uh, Certainly when he said he saw that there was more and better food in, in his palace than people in other homes had. That's kind of the beginnings of that realization. He didn't have to endure heat, hunger, unpleasantness. And how similar are many of us to this privileged prince? In a lot of ways, we have more clothing than we need, perhaps. We have our air conditioning during the heat dome. We have entertainment. We have delicious food. And we might be a little attached or even addicted to some of this comfort. Um, We might tend to believe on some hidden level that they are reliable sources of our happiness, that we're happier with them than without them. So continuing with this sutta, the Buddha says, Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me when an untaught, run-of-the-mill person, himself or herself, subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, they are horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to themselves that they too are subject to aging, not beyond aging. If I, who am subject, excuse me, subject to aging, not beyond aging, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is aged, that would not be fitting for me. As I noticed this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. So another aside, if we're lucky enough to live to an age, and I think several of us are, when you start seeing your skin wrinkling, sagging, getting age spots, textured like crepe paper, and seeing that your body is no longer in the prime of functionality, if you live to that age, if you see it, or even if you see it when you're young, and if you get put off by that, um, or you're in opposition to that, you're going to stick with youth no matter what. You're going to not have this stuff happen to you. You're setting yourself up for a collision with the reality of life at some point if you live long enough. We can get hung up on identity view that's based on our youth in certain ways. 
we can see some people try to hold on to youth, maybe even spend a fortune on plastic surgery and uh, end up looking slightly plastic. Um, and perhaps we're not that extreme. We may simply work hard to stay fit, but we're not going to be able, even if we do that, which is healthy, we're not going to be able to hang on to the speed, strength, and flexibility that we had when we were young. And I don't think the Buddha is inviting us here to stop caring for our physical well-being at all. I think he's inviting us to ask ourselves whether we're getting attached or even in some sense addicted to youth and whether that in itself would lead to freedom from suffering or more suffering. You know, maybe you've had similar experiences to mine in what is a rather youth-obsessed culture. I've heard a colleague bemoan that they were turning 30 and they hadn't achieved professional success, marriage, children, and a long list of actions or accomplishments that bordered on the impossible. Um, or, and I've also heard a friend with a very healthy body that does everything they ask of it complain that they're not the super athlete or that they're not a certain size. You know, I, I, I guess the I loved this quote my husband uh, told me about while I was working on this talk. He quoted the guitarist Joe Walsh, who said, it was a lot more fun being 20 in the 70s than being 70 in the 20s. <laughs> so some of us can relate to that. And as the sutta continues, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me when an untaught run-of-the-mill person himself or themselves subject to illness, not beyond illness, sees another who is ill, they are horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to themselves that they too are subject to illness, not beyond illness. And if I, who am subject to illness, not beyond illness, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is ill, that would not be fitting for me. As I noticed this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. Now, I don't know that uh, those of us who are in this room are exactly horrified, humiliated, and disgusted with illness, but perhaps the pandemic taught many of us that we cannot depend on the idea that if we take care of our health, it's always going to be fine. I think it uh, woke some of us up or even scared many of us to realize there are conditions we cannot control. And perhaps we now see that inflexible self-views or views about our health and how I'm going to preserve it just by being just so lead in the direction of a disconnect with how reality can be. Continuing with the sutta, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, when an untaught run-of-the-mill person, themselves subject to death, not beyond death, sees another who is dead, they are horrified, humiliated, and disgusted oblivious to themselves that they too are subject to death, not beyond death. And if I, who am subject to death, 
not beyond death, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is dead, that would not be fitting for me. As I noticed this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. So maybe you've known people, as I have, who've become stuck for a long time beyond, you know, what would be natural in grieving when someone in their life dies unexpectedly. Um, you know, some people, I, I've worked with people in this vein, and that's why I'm saying this. Um, some will really insist or feel that it had to be the fault of the medical professionals or that their loved one, some families will insist that the loved one who's dying has to continue with with treatments when the ill person themselves says they'd like to stop. Um, I've known situations with entire families in denial that a parent's serious illness and medical prognosis was leading to death. And that was to the de- detriment of the ability of both the children and the adults in the family to work with the reality in front of them. Now, I completely understand fighting illness to the last. I had a lot of empathy with that. But there can also be a certain amount of denial around death that can be harmful to us, let's say. So just taking that into account. And so the Buddha continues or or concludes in this sutta, monks, there are these three forms of intoxication. Which three? Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. Drunk with the intoxication of youth, an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person engages in bodily misconduct, verbal misconduct, and mental misconduct. Having engaged in bodily misconduct, verbal misconduct, and mental misconduct, they, on the breakup of the body after death, reappear in the plane of deprivation, the bad destination, the lower realms in hell. And he repeats the same stanza, drunk with the intoxication, but this time not of youth, of health. An uninstructed run-of-the-mill person engages in bodily misconduct, verbal misconduct, and mental misconduct. Having engaged in bodily misconduct, verbal misconduct, and mental misconduct, they, on the breakup of the body after death, reappear in the plane of deprivation, the bad destination, the lower realms, in hell. And then he goes on the same way with drunk with the intoxication of life. So the way I take this this uh, set of phrases or stanzas is we live as though we're going to last forever and as though we can get away with unwholesome or slightly unhelpful bodily, verbal, and mental behaviors. Um, we sometimes act like we're in denial about the inconstancy or the unreliability of youth, health, and life itself as sources of happiness. And I, my interpretation of the way this is written, and this is personal, but I would assert that we will suffer the bad destination, the situations that feel like hell, in this very life, <laughs> when we engage in those things, we don't have to wait for the breakup of body after death. <laughs> we, we're living it right now. 
in fact, you know, I've felt like I've already lived several lifetimes right here and now in this life and have suffered when I've done something, when I've thought things that weren't so helpful, when I've said things that weren't so helpful, and when I've behaved in ways that weren't so helpful. So I don't believe the Buddha is encouraging us not to appreciate youth. He's not suggesting we be careless about our health, and he's not inviting us to be careless about life itself, like wanting to die or, or just taking unnecessary risks. I don't think he's saying that. Instead, I think he's pointing out how a lot of the ways we suffer, experience stress, or are dissatisfied have to do with this particular kind of heedlessness um, that in some way our delusions, our greed, and our aversion can be traced back to attachments with the idea that youth or that health or that life is reliable, is constant, is, and that we are somehow some fixed person, some fixed self who's going through these things. And that that, that those things are a source of lasting happiness. So this is actually, um, can be very subtle until you start to encounter any of these areas that, you know, the underpinning would be attachment to youth or attachment to health or attachment to life. It's not necessarily that obvious. Um, so it, this sutta concludes with a kind of poem which summarizes it. Subject to birth, subject to aging, subject to death, run-of-the-mill people are repelled by those who suffer from that to which they are subject. And if I were to be repelled by being subject to those things, it would not be fitting for me living as they do. As I maintain this attitude, knowing the Dhamma without acquisitions, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life. As one who sees renunciation as rest, for me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. There's now no way I could partake of sensual pleasures. Having followed the holy life, I will not return. So I want to admit that for a long time, I didn't quite absorb this teaching, you know, that the Buddha encountered sickness, old age, and death, and that that startled him into awareness. And I think I had a bit of an attitude towards it in the abstract, that it was kind of depressing or boring us with conditions we don't face right now illness, aging, and death, okay, they're going to come someday, but so what? Um, But over time, as that attitude has dissolved, and I've become, the way it's dissolved is becoming more engaged in the moment-to-moment awareness and meditation and daily life with dukkha, anicca, and anatta. So with unsatisfactoriness, or what we call suffering, unreliability, or what is sometimes called impermanence, and no self, or what I think of as no fixed self, I've found that those moment-to-moment realizations and the encounter with sickness, old age, and death, you know, like being willing to be aware of them, accept them, experience them when they happen to you, um, 
these realizations actually lead to a lot of happiness and joy in living. So the sutta seems to be showing us one of the key ways the Buddha came to see that sustainable happiness is to be found, that freedom from suffering is to be found, not by clinging and identifying with youth, health, and and life itself, and all of the things that are attached to those areas, um, but by learning how to live moment to moment in awareness that's not hooked on sensual pleasures, not hooked on self-view. So I hope that um, some of those comments were stimulating or of benefit. And um, this is a a great time for us to reflect together on uh, what this uh, evokes for you. You know, what what comes up in you? um, What are your experiences? What are your questions? Where do you have arguments with this teaching? Um, Any of the above. And you can, if you're not visible on screen, you're welcome to unmute or you can raise your hand if you're ready to talk.